pray with me, please. Lord, I, I pray most of all that your word would do its work, that, that this would be clear, that you would speak. And I pray, God, you'd help me to be as, as efficient as I can, trusting you, because I feel that we've, already, we've had a lot to eat this morning. But Lord, let your will be done in that, and I pray everybody would, would look to you now as well as me. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is a little bit odd. Mike, would you grab those guys who are out there talking? It's a little bit, I can hear them, and also I really want them to eat from the Lord's word. Um, so please, if you have a Bible, please open up to Matthew 25. Uh, we're, we're continuing our focus on the second coming of Jesus Christ. We've been in this long series, kind of long mini-series on Advent. Advent means coming. We dealt with the first Advent before the new year and after the new year. We're dealing with the second Advent. We're in Matthew 25. Um, and, and remember what Matthew 24 told us as we went through that several weeks ago. Jesus describes the world situation before he comes in Matthew 24. He describes what his coming will be like in Matthew 24. And then he follows that, call, that instruction on his coming with parables. Parables are stories with metaphors, like they're stories to tell us about something else. They're not literal things. They're kind of like nursery rhymes or fairy tales or Aesop's fables. They're lessons to help us understand the importance of his coming to help us understand what's going to happen when he does come and the real impact of what's going to happen on the earth, on people. Because when he comes, he's going to be judging the world. And he wants us to be prepared for that judgment. So the disciples are all interested in when are you coming, when are you coming, when are you coming? And his response is basically, there's some things, <laughs> but you really don't know. The more important thing isn't when I'm coming, but what will you be when I come? Will you be prepared when I come? So that's what he really spends most of the time trying to get them to see with his heart. And last week we looked at the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And in that we saw that some are prepared for the Lord's coming. They've taken him seriously and some were not prepared for the Lord's coming. They have not taken him seriously. And I am so sorry but it's really loud out there. <laughs> Does anybody know what's going on? Oh, it is? It's the, it's the, oh, I'm sorry. Mike, if the door can't be shut, just, um, just tell me to deal with it and stop being a baby. And you can say it just like that. Oh, okay, okay. So we ended last week's parable of the, of the ten bridesmaids, the ten virgins, with this command from Jesus. He says at the end of that, and it's really the, the command over all of these parables. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And isn't th it sounds like an oxymoron. Watch, for you know neither the day. It's an oxymoron if, like it's, it's a contradiction, if what he's saying to watch for is when he's coming. But he's, he's not really saying it like that. Try to figure out the day of the order. Or he's saying, watch your life. Watch your heart because you don't know when I'm coming. Be watchful over your lives. That's what he's saying. And that command, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour, that command both closes last week's parable on the ten bridesmaids or ten virgins and it opens this week's parable on the talents. This is called the parable of the talents and we're gonna get right to it starting in verse 14. For it, it being the coming of the Son of Man, 
the day of judgment. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, to another he gave one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So we're going to take, take a little moment here and talk about where we are so far. When we hear the word talent, don't think of talent like singing ability. Don't think of talent like painting. We need to translate it to a sum of money. Talent was a specific sum like a ton. That's 2,000 pounds. Or a grand is $10,000. So it'd be much better if our translation said he gave a lot of money to or this, money, this many units. But we have to do a little bit of cultural translations. And in, in this parable, if we go back to the time and what a talent meant, it was a huge weight of something. The owner, we find out, has given huge sums of money to his servants. And in ta- today's terms, some estimate that one talent might have been as much as 1.5 million dollars and two talents three million dollars and five talents 7.5 million dollars so that's what the probably more likely the disciples would have heard when they hear about one talent five talents two talents a million and a half three million 7.5 million the point is these servants were entrusted each one of them with tremendous resources to steward for their master. And, and a point to be understood about that is that no matter what you think of your relationships that God's given you, no matter what you think of your IQ, your gifts, your personality, the current opportunities, your job, God has given you significant resources of his to steward. But this also brings up a good question. What, what, how do I translate what those talents are for me? Okay, so talents in the parable is a lot of money. So what exactly is that in my life? Are they giftings? Like spiritual giftings for, for preaching or spiritual giftings for prophecy or spiritual giftings for administration or serving? Are they natural giftings? Just you're really bright or you have a good sense of humor. Or you can paint beautiful paintings and art. Are, are they opportunities? God's given you to serve him. Here's another opportunity at church to do this ministry or to step into this new job or promotion. Are they the number of days we have on the earth, the time God's given us? What are they? Maybe more importantly, our talents, the people that God has put in our lives, the relationships we're called to steward for his glory. And I like that the most because we think about the big picture of Jesus Christ, the whole point of Christ coming to earth dying for our sins and rising to the Father's right hand is the salvation of people. That's his biggest treasure on this earth. 
and reconciling people to God, drawing people into his kingdom. And, and when they're in his kingdom, nurturing and discipling people. So wh- whatever the deeper meaning what the, that these talents have, they must relate to how we treat one another and how we treat the lost for his sake. And then they include all these other things we talked about. They include our spiritual gifts, our natural gifts. They include our, our money, our time. They include the number of days we have in this earth left. They include our jobs. So I think it's just fair to say that the talent is anything God has asked you to steward for the good of others and for his glory. And I think the reason Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time explaining what the talents are is because that's not really the point. Like he, I don't think he wants us to get too lost in what, what is a talent? I think it's nice to say a talent is anything God has asked you to steward for the good of others and for his glory. And notice too that the, the master gives this money, this huge sum of money to each one according to their ability. The master knows that for who each servant is, how they're wired, how, they're, they're, how they can handle things, they can only handle so much. And so too it is with us. God knows what resources, what opportunities we should be stewarding. He knows what is too much for us at any given time. And he sovereignly decides who gets how much in the way of like relational influence. Who gets how much in the way of intelligence maybe. Who gets how much in the way of opportunity according to what he knows is best for us. You guys, some of you guys might bemoan the fact that you do not make friends as easily as someone more extroverted or with a more flavorable personality or, or that you aren't a quick decision maker. I struggle with that. Or that you don't have more responsibilities at work. I used to have big dreams of being a, a Matt Redman or a Chris, Lim, Chris Tomlin and I always wondered, you know, God, why didn't you open those doors and help me develop that? Well, you know, there, there's a human element in these things in, in how we develop what we can develop. There's a human element like Yes, there's, there's going to school or practicing your gifts or being wise with what God has given you. Those things are real. But there's also a ceiling in God's sovereignty. Like he's given you what he's going to give you. And at some point, outside of that human element, you can only have before you what God will allow you to have in any given season. And you can't, you can't make it more than that. And, and in any case... God says, I've given each person the significant amount that's been given to them has been given in my wisdom and in my sovereignty for my glory and for your good. And so it's our only right response when we think about our talents, whatever God's given us to steward, is not to blame God for what we don't have right now, but to focus on stewarding well what we do have. See that principle? We're not to blame God for what we don't have right now, but to steward what we do have. Now back to the text. This is where our story takes a sour turn. You see verse 18. He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So the others went to work with their money they were given to make more money. But this one, he did not go to work. He, he went down to his mom and dad's basement and he put it in a shoebox. <laughs> Verse 19 goes on. Now after a long time, the master of these servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's notice a few things here too. Notice after a long time, verse 19. See that now after a long time. A significant journey in those days without cars, without planes. It might literally be years. So think about a long time for a moment. This is, if you've been tracking, this is the third time in three parables. This is the third time in three parables that Jesus has alluded to this delay, this long time in his return. So Jesus tells us in these chapters that no one knows the day or the hour. But he also tells us through this, no one should lose heart or lose faith because he has been gone a long time. This is exactly what he intimated in these parables again and again. I'm going to be gone a long time. And over against this is Jesus' promise within these parables as well that he's gonna come when we don't expect him to. Revelation 20, for instance, says, he is coming quickly. Some translations say, I am coming soon. But the Greek is, is, is flexible there. And, and I believe what it means in light of these parables, in light of what he says here about, I'm coming suddenly. He, that Greek word, which sometimes is translated soon, I think is better translated, I am coming suddenly. I am coming quickly. I'm coming when you do not expect me to. And our job is to live expectantly. So do we... Do we be consumed with watching for signs? No, not that there's anything wrong with studying eschatology. I love it, as I said before. But the goal is that we watch our hearts so that we're prepared because he comes at any time and suddenly. In fact, previously he's guaranteed he will come when you don't expect him to. And we see now how for the first two, Jesus commends these servants because they didn't get the timing of his coming right but because they got his, their faithfulness to him right. Second, no matter what these servants were given, I'm thinking about the first two who were commended, there's no distinction in the reward for those who were faithful. Do you see that? He says the same thing to both of them, whether they got five or whether they got two. He says, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. The faithful servants get a surprise the meaningful resources that were given to them in this life now pale in comparison to the reward of being set over much, Jesus says, in eternal life. They were given millions of dollars to steward. It was a big deal. It should have been a big deal when they got it. But when the Lord comes back, things have changed. And he says, really, that was, if, my secret to you is that that was little in comparison to what I'm now going to give you. In eternity. 
And oftentimes I've thought about certain dreams I've had, even, even m- musically or things that I wish I was better at or I wish I'd developed more. And, and I think things I had tried that the Lord seemed to not open the doors for. And I'm, I just keep a secret place in my heart that helps my fears or my tensions there, and my longings that says when, when the eternal comes, when his kingdom fully comes on earth, I'm gonna be so surprised the joys and the opportunities that God gives me and gives all of us to glorify him that I think will make what we've done on earth pale in comparison. Your Bible study, your running the soundboard, your running the coffee machine, your, you know, it, these things that we're faithful to, I, I, your marriage, <laughs> which is so huge and so significant. I, I think God's gonna come and say, you had no idea what your faithfulness in your marriage or your attempts to be faithful to your marriage are going to mean for your eternity now. The value of your marriage, which is so huge on this earth, it's going to pale in comparison to the value of maybe what your relationship to your spouse will be in eternity and certainly others. And, and for both servants, again, the reward is the same. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. It, the, the valuation isn't, well, you made five talents, so you get a good size amount. You made 10 talents, so you get a whole bunch. No, it was, it was, were you faithful? Were you faithful? Were you faithful? That's really the central center of this whole parable. Were you, were you faithful? God doesn't ask you to be or do more than other people. He doesn't ask you to look at the person with two talents and say, ah, oh, they only got two, woohoo, I got one. He's asking you to be faithful with what he's given to you. And that's a lifesaver in an age of comparisons. Remember the widow's might? This woman had two pennies in her savings account. <laughs> that's what it says. She, I think she had like two pennies. And she gave it all to God. And, and she gave it all to God. This is in, I can't remember which, which gospel or gospels this is in. But, but she's surrounded by rich people giving a lot more money than she had. But in her extreme poverty, Jesus saw extreme faithfulness. And so he said, truly, she gave more than all the rest. There were people around her giving maybe thousands of dollars. She gave two cents. And in God's heart, he said, she's giving out of her poverty all that she has. They're giving out of their wealth a part of what they had. She's given more than all the rest. You see the accents on faithfulness. Third, enter into the joy of your master. Jesus says, enter into the joy of your master. Like, that's weird. Like, this isn't about businessmen and money and talents. Like, what boss is gonna come over to you if you've done a good job and say, come into my joy, you know? Jesus is stepping out of the limits of the parable here. He does that a couple of times here. A, a, a normal master and servant relationship would mean that the servant would get their own private reward and enjoy their own private reward. Here's your paycheck, go and do what you want with it. But with the Lord, this is what he's telling us in this parable and breaking sort of out of it, breaking through the fourth wall, so to speak. The Lord is saying, no reward matters more than me. Enter into the joy of your master, that's your reward. I am your reward. God said to Abraham, do not fear. You can lose everything. I am your reward. And so these faithful servants enter into his joy. There is no greater joy possible than the joy that comes in knowing and enjoying God. And we have tastes of that joy on earth and we're supposed to. Paul says we have the first fruits of the spirit. 
But then he goes on for the rest of that chapter in Romans 8 and he says, but we groan, we groan inwardly, waiting in this world of futility until our full redemption comes, until the harvest comes. We've gotten a taste of it, he says. And it's an amazing taste. We have tastes of joy in the Lord on earth. They're like tastes of heaven on earth when we experience them. But there is a coming day when even what we experience now, which is amazing, will pale in comparison to the joy we experience, the joy we feel when he returns and draws us closer than ever into him and into each other than we could ever imagine in a way that will never stop, ever. Can you imagine the best quiet time, the best devotional time, the best spiritual high you've ever been on? It will pale in comparison to the joy of knowing him and being known by him, being safe in his arms, being united with each other in a way that I don't think we can do any justice to. That's the greatest reward he has for us. But the Lord warns us that not everyone will receive that reward in this parable. It's not everyone's experience Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked, slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this last servant He received less than the others. They got five and two, he gets one. But we've already seen that this is arbitrary. It doesn't matter. In fact, this man, who was a poor steward of the small, relatively speaking, the smaller talent he got, it accentuates what Jesus showed before. How much you have is not the issue. Faithfulness is the issue. And just because you have a little in your mindset does not mean that you aren't called to be a steward of that little. You might be thinking to yourself, "Ah, I just have such meager gifts compared to other people. I have such meager opportunities. I have such meager whatever you want to call it. God says steward what you have. That's not an excuse for you to be lazy. And the servant reasons to his master, I knew you were a hard man. You're a harsh master. You want me to work for what will benefit you. All this, it's for your glory stuff. What are you, some kind of whole glory hog? You want me to do all this work so that you can earn off of my hard work? You want me to take what you gave me so that you can get from it? Exploit me, even though it's gonna be me who does the work. 
That's what he's saying to him. That's harsh. And it's also not true. Look at the reward the master gave to the others. He says it pales in comparison to what they'd been given. And what they'd been given belonged to the master in the first place. It was always his property. The master's not fooled. He's not phased. And he, he, this is incredible what he does here. And super sobering to me. He sees beneath the claims this man makes that he's harsh and demanding. And that he's looking to receive a benefit from someone else in an exploitive way. He sees, look at this. He sees that what's beneath all that is laziness. All these excuses about how awful the master is. There's this drive in this person to be lazy, to serve themselves. Lazy, wicked servant. Within our hearts is a desire to sin. And when Satan speaks lies to us about God and paints God as someone he's not, when Satan tells us God will not provide, he will not allow this to be You will not be able to get through this. He will not give you the grace you need to get through it. He will not help you. You might not hear it like that. You might rather rather feel it or think it with no reference to God. You might think just without reference to God, my future is hopeless. I will not be able to do what I should. There's no one to help me. But each of those statements, it is saying something about God, that he is too harsh, that he's not able to help you, that he can't be trusted. And and too often, when our hearts hear those whispers, instead of running to God's promises and struggling with God's promises and God's words, our heart will hear those whispers and use them as a motivation to escape into what we already want to do. Do you see that? I remember when I was courting Jen, we were dating, and and I remember coming to her house and, and being so convicted about this, I, I'd come to her house, she'd open the door and, and I, the Lord revealed this to me. She would give me like a pouty face or a happy face. And if she gave me a pouty face, I would pout. And if she gave me a happy face, she would, I would be happy. And if she went to give me a hug, I would give her a hug. And if she stood at the door and didn't give me, I would stand at the door. And, 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 I, and I, I was like, the Lord kind of just revealed to me, Albert, you are looking to be served by, your, by Jen as opposed to serve her. You're, you're, you're like giving into this emotional passivity. You're her husband-to-be. I've called you to lead her. So don't wait for her to give you something in terms of affection or kindness. You give it to her. I'm still working on that. But God said that's emotional passivity. You know, and to me, if you'd have asked me, I would have, I'm sad, I'm blue, I want to, you know, my mom wasn't nice to me. You know, I would have said all these things about like how I didn't get what I wanted to get. And some of that stuff's true and some of that stuff hurt. But God is here and he's given me enough in his Holy Spirit to say no to that and to love my wife and to not be emotionally passive, but to lead her with encouragement. But I use those other voices as an escape hatch. Too often, when we hear those whispers, future's hopeless, I can't do what I should, there's no one to help me, too often we hear those whispers and we run into escapes. 
laziness, porn, anger, bitterness, instead of running to God to do battle with his promises. The Lord would say, aren't I a master who has said to you, I know temptation is hard, but I will be faithful to provide a way out. Isn't our master the one who says, come to my throne of grace and mercy for every time of need with boldness, come. Isn't our master the one who says, I am gentle and humble of heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't our master the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Isn't our master the one who says, seek first my kingdom and all that you need will be given to you. Isn't our master one who says, you can do all things that I've called you to do through me who strengthens you. And on and on and on the promises go. The end of this story though is horrible for this lazy wicked servant. His talents, his resources, whatever opportunities, it's taken from him and given to those who were faithful. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Stop for a moment there. Cast this worthless servant. This is Jesus Christ talking. Please for a moment, however tense this feels or unlike what you're used to hearing Jesus be like, let Jesus be Jesus. And listen to his words. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we don't want the master's kingdom, there's no other kingdom for us. We don't see that now. This is an age of grace, a time to come to him, trust him, bow down before him. But there's gonna be a come a day where there's not gonna be an option. And if you don't want his kingdom and you keep not wanting his kingdom, someday you're gonna find out there's no kingdom for you. And if you don't want to find joy in him, you want to find joy in other things, whether they're good things or sinful things, but you don't want to find joy in him, someday you're going to find out there is no other joy to be had but joy in him. God has created an incredible world with all kinds of pleasures, but they're all meant to point us and lead us to him. If we never come to the place where we want him he will not allow us to indefinitely go on enjoying the world he created for us to find him, but we use it as an escape from him. That's called idolatry. And that makes him furious. And that's why his wrath is on the world. And this reference to outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth from Jesus' words, it... <laughs> It's a reference to eternal judgment when God will judge those who have rejected him and cast them into a place of sadness and frustration and regret and destruction that Jesus gives no indication will ever end. I do not understand this very well. But we need to let Jesus be Jesus. A few days ago I saw Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, 
someone who I had seen, I thought many years, for many years, confess Christ as his Lord and Savior. I saw him publicly repudiate historic Christian teaching and Christianity itself. I saw him publicly repudiate Jesus' teaching on hell, saying he no longer aligns himself, I read an ESPN article, he no longer aligns himself with being a Christian. This, this idea of God is too harsh. I see this happening more and more. People falling away who were strong believers, at least in profession. From the outside, it looked like it. And I think along with the historic teaching of, of God and Christ on sexuality and his apostles on sexuality, this doctrine of eternal punishment is, 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 is becoming and is going to continue to be one of the great exit ramps away from faithfulness to Jesus Christ for you and I to engage with and to have to deal with and to have to endure sexuality and, and this idea of eternal punishment. It's gonna be an, it is an exit ramp right now in our culture for people to say, ah, too harsh, too harsh. But when we struggle with this, and, and listen, I struggle with, there is no more difficult doctrine for me than eternal punishment. But I've got to decide if, if, if I'm going to trust what Jesus Christ says about eternal punishment or what quarterback Aaron Rodgers says. <laughs> like, who, who has more clarity on eternal things? Jesus Christ or the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers? And of course, there are other well-read, more studied men who, who, who say this, but they have to get in the ring with Jesus Christ, who said these words, whose apostles said these words. And, and I think that when we struggle with this issue of eternal punishment, of hell, of judgment, I think it almost always, if not always, betrays a lack of understanding of, of God's holiness, of the glory and the worship that God truly deserves, and of the great offense it is to God when we daily sin against his glory and worship and love and trust. And I, I can only say that the closer and more devoted you stay to Jesus' actual words, and the words of his actual apostles in his word, I, I think that the less you are going to be likely to be led astray by spiritual lies about God, the more you stay attached and devoted to Jesus' actual words and the words of his apostles, the less you are going to be led astray by spiritual lies about God. And I would just commend you to struggle to understand those words more than you struggle to understand how these bright people and these wonderful critical scholars have figured out that what Jesus says he doesn't really mean. And you struggle to put all of these words together from Jesus and his apostles and from the Old Testament and, and see the unity in them and see the God's glory in them. It is so crucial for your endurance and for the sake of those who need your endurance that you stay close to Jesus' words his actual words about these things, because he knows a little more about eternal things than Aaron Rodgers and a host of other scholars. No one has come from heaven except the one who has been sent from heaven. And if you remember the backdrop of our whole Advent series, 
The big proclamation we said at the beginning is, look how true God's word is. We looked at these prophecies about Jesus Christ given hundreds and thousands of years before he came, and we said, test him. Put your fingers in his wounds and your hand in his side. Look at his word telling us when he would come, why he would come, how he would come. Again and again and again, God pleading, pay attention to me. I mean what I say. I am not fooling with you. It's so crucial that we let Jesus be Jesus and we dwell on what he says. Listen, it's very easy to say to the world, God loves you. How can I pray for you? That might get a weird look. That's not gonna get you persecuted, brothers and sisters, and it's not gonna save anyone. God loves you, how can I pray for you? That's pretty easy to say. It's very hard to say. However you can say it, whenever you can say it, God loves you, but he is going to bring eternal punishment upon you for rejecting his son. So will you please turn to him and give your life to him? That's what Jesus preached again and again and again. That's what Peter preached on Pentecost. Turn from your sins. That's what Paul preached on Mars Hill in in, in Athens. The Lord commands all now to turn to him in repentance, for there is a day coming when he will judge the world by the one he has sent. That's the gospel that he calls out. That's what Jesus preached, and he was crucified for it. That's what Paul preached, and he was beaten and murdered for it. That's what Peter preached, and he was martyred for it. A few final thoughts. What you have does not belong to you. Big, huge message here. What I have does not belong to me. The family and relationships we have, the personal traits and spiritual gifts we have, the time we have, the money and possessions we have, everything you have, down to the DNA floating in your white blood cells, is a gift from someone else. It's just fundamental reality, folks. You did not make yourself. Even an atheist knows that. You did not create your conscience. Look at your arms. They're amazing. Look at your fingers. They're the most amazing intricate machines ever created. They just, they're just here. <laughs> like they're a gift from someone else. And you use them every day and they belong to him. And he calls you to use it in a way that honors him, does spiritual good to others, as well as spiritual good to you, because he wants spiritual good for you. He knows that there's no contradiction between his glory and your joy. They're one and the same. The more you seek his glory, the more joy you get. Because you were made for him. As Nancy said earlier, no other husband were you made for. But more than that, everything you have that belongs to Jesus, which is everything you have, he will ask you to give an account for your life that he gave you and your faithfulness and how you used it. He is going to do this. And this brings us to number two. You cannot grow in faithfulness in your own power. Listen, folks, this parable is not the gospel. 
There's no good news in this parable except the rewards are really nice. But there's nothing about the atonement, Jesus dying for your sins. There's nothing in this parable that tells us how to deal with our opposition to God in this parable. This is a warning from Jesus. We see what happens to the lazy servant and we should fear and we should evaluate our lives and this parable is designed to cast us in repentance upon the promises of Jesus in the gospel. Remember what we said last week. Remember last week. If you were here last week, you remember this. If you weren't here last week, just please hear me out. The laws of God, like be faithful, they cannot on their own change you. They cannot on their own give you a new life. They can only make you see your need for God's mercy and power if you don't belong to him. But if you do belong to him, then you do have what you need to live out this command. And so in either case, it's to Jesus we must go for greater faithfulness. Either to say, Lord, I am not living this way. I don't even want to follow you. I don't want to give myself to you. But man, I am convicted. You are coming. This life is not my own. Please forgive me of my idolatry. Please help me give my life to you. Or to say, Lord, I've known you a long time. And you've been in my life and you show me your power. I want to keep going. Or I want to go better. Please help me. Please give me grace. Because, point three, you can and must grow through the power of the Holy Spirit. The story is not only told to make us say, Jesus, forgive me for how I'm a poor steward. Thank you, amen, goodbye. (laughs) That's not what the story is for. Oh man, I stink. Lord, forgive me, I'm so grateful for the cross. Bye-bye. I'll go back and live this way. No, it's to alert us to the coming return of the Son of God who will ask each of his people to give an account for what he entrusted to them. And, and that day will prove whether we really followed him, whether we really believed in him, whether we really were born again. That day will prove it. This isn't an invitation to be saved by works, but it is a reminder that when you are saved, the fruit of the Spirit comes out of your life, if you are. So as we struggle with faithfulness, which we all do, we can neither ignore our need to be faithful, nor can we put our hope or our hopelessness in ourselves. We must turn again and again to the Lord who forgives our sins again and again as a gift and who, as we hold on to that hope and who he is, supplies us with the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in his new life and in his power Grace is the foundation, but also the continuing fuel for following Jesus. So as we close here, I want to spend a few minutes. I'm going to ask the band to come up now. I want to ask you to spend a few minutes reflecting, asking God to search your heart concerning faithfulness. And I I want to put it, there's the slide. And you know, if, if these don't help you, and you already feel like God's speaking to you, Speak to him about that. But, but these are here for you to consider if it might help you. Are you seeking to be faithful in, in your devotion to the Lord? 
your time, especially in prayer and the word, as you have opportunity. We don't all have the same opportunity. A single person might have more opportunities than a mom with four kids like my wife has. But as you have opportunity, according to your ability, are you being faithful in your private devotion to him? Your devotion and your care for your spouse, your husband or your wife or your children and your family. Are you nourishing your bride if you're a husband? Are you trying? Or if you aren't doing it well, are you looking for help? Same with a wife. Are you looking to support your husband? Your kids, do they only eat a diet of SpongeBob and cartoons and Marvel movies? God's not asking a church to train them up in the Lord. He's asking you dads. Your love and commitment to your church family. Are you taking the stewardship of this church seriously with your time, with your talent, with your treasure? This is your church. This is my church. We can't look around waiting for stuff to happen. We, we need to be part of making stuff happen. So are there ways that God could be calling you to be faithful here? Go to a care group. Get involved in people's lives. Come to prayer on Tuesday. Mentor someone. Ask to be mentored by somebody. If you need help with any of that, please come and talk to me. I will try to help you with any of that stuff. Your witness and how you serve your employer, your coworkers at work. Do you do your job? You fight to do your job, right? Not perfectly. You fight to be faithful there with what's given to you that they might say, that's a good worker. Do you laugh at what you're not supposed to laugh at? Or you just walk away when someone says something you know is just trash. And when the door opens to give a word about Jesus, do you give that word? Do you ask him for help to give that word? Or you run in fear? Your witness to the lost and how you live and how you speak and the poor, those who need mercy. It's a lot to think about. So maybe the Lord just has one of these, maybe two of these, but spend some time now just praying to him, asking him to, or your own area, how you deal with your phone and the media. But the big question is faithfulness. Are you being faithful to him with this life?